welcome to PwC IFRS Talks, your source of all things IFRS, technical accounting matters, business issues, current standard setting and regulatory updates. I'm your host, Ruth Preedy. In today's episode, we're covering hyperinflation and I'm joined by two guests, one of our favourites, Mr Tony DeBell, welcome back, and we've got a new face on the scene, Flavia Maslatin, welcome to the studio, Flavia. Okay, so a little bit about hyperinflation, focusing on uh, Argentina. So Argentina has had um, high inflation for several years, and we've seen an increase in 2018, and now the three-year cumulative inflation rate has exceeded 100% for several months. So we're going to think about what that means for um, the accounting perspective and get into some of the details. So Flavia, I'll, I'll turn to you first. What does this mean? Is there an accounting impact? Of course, this has an impact from an accounting perspective, which is that entities with a functional currency of the Argentine peso or also parent companies that have subsidiaries with that functional currency are required to apply IS-29 for accounting periods ending after 1st July 2018. But one important thing to have in mind is that IS-29 is applied as if the economy had always been hyperinflationary, and therefore the impact on the initial application will probably be significant for most entities in Argentina and for many entities with subsidiaries in Argentina. Okay, so we've got to apply IS-29 and we've got to pretend it's always been there. What does that actually mean, Tony? It means a number of things. Uh, the first thing is that um, assets and liabilities that have to be restated for inflation are restated from the date on which they were originally acquired. So there's going to be an element of a catch-up adjustment for the inflation that happened before uh, the Argentine economy became hyperinflationary. Um, we also have to think about the impact of the period in 2018 before Argentina became hyperinflationary because um, income statement items, items of, of comprehensive loss, have to be restated for the entire year. And those are things that we can talk about in a bit more detail uh, as we get further into the, the list of questions I'm sure you've got to ask us. The, the other thing that I think folks have to bear in mind is that um, uh, assets and liabilities, assets particularly, will be restated for inflation. That means the carrying value will be increased. IS-29 is clear that it is the restated, the increased carrying value that gets tested for impairment. And so when a company is applying for the first time, it needs to think about whether there is any impact on impairment tests carried out in the past as a result of the inflated carrying values of the assets. Wow, so lots to think about there, big implications. And as part of that, you said like assets increase, we're going to have to use an index to do the actual numbers. What index um, are we going to use? So the most important thing about setting the index that will be used in for, or for the purposes of inflating under IS-29 is that every company in the country, whether it's an Argentine company or it's a subsidiary in Argentina or a foreign company, uses the same index. And IS-29 is quite clear that companies all ought to use the same index. So that means it's important that local guidance is issued so that everybody locally is comfortable with the guidance and that everybody uses the same index. Now, in this case, the local accounting standard setter has issued some guidance and has issued some indices that ought to be used uh, for the purposes of restatement. Uh, those indices are based 
largely for the period before the end of 2016 on the wholesale price index, and then subsequently, so for the period beginning 1st of January 2017, uh, the indices are largely based on the consumer price index. Okay, brilliant. So we know what index to use now. Um, Flavia, back to you. Do we have to um, look at all assets and liabilities? Do they all need to be restated? That is a very good question. What entities will need to do is to segregate assets and liabilities into monetary and non-monetary items. Monetary items are, for example, cash, trade receivables or borrowings. So they represent money held to be received or to be paid. They are already expressed in a measuring unit current at the year end and therefore they do not need to be restated. However, non-monetary items, for example, inventory, intangible assets or deferred income will need to be restated because otherwise they are not expressed in the measuring unit current at the balance sheet date. Okay, so we need to restate non-monetary. How do we do that, Tony? Okay, so. The logic in IS-29 is that financial statements that are expressed in a measuring unit current at the time that an item was first recognised are not necessarily meaningful if the value of cash is being eroded by inflation over time. So the logic for in, in IS-29 that all of the items on the balance sheet at the end of a period are expressed in a measuring unit current at the end of the period. And as Flavia said, monetary assets and liabilities are expressed in cash, so they are already expressed in the monetary unit at the end of the period. Uh, Non-monetary items are not. And so each non-monetary item on the balance sheet, PP&E, intangibles, inventory, whatever, uh, is restated from the date on which it was first recognised for changes in the inflation index up to the end of the current period. So if you have an item of PP&E on the balance sheet at the 30th of September uh, 2018, the period end that's just gone, and that was acquired in January 2015, so the carrying value of that asset will be inflated to reflect changes in the index since January 2015 when it was acquired up until the balance sheet date. Okay. And what about, if we move to the P&L, what about income and expenses? So the same principle applies to income and expenses, that it's um, arguably not meaningful to reflect revenue or expenses incurred in January in the measuring unit that was current in January, because come the end of the year, the transactions in December will reflect the measuring unit current in December. So uh, items of income and expense are also restated for the changes in the index between the date they were first recognised and the balance sheet date. Similar logic is applied to uh, income and expenses that go through other comprehensive income, so you would restate them from the day when they were first recognised. The approach to equity is... It's slightly different, but not a lot. So when IS-29 is first applied, Items of equity, other than retained earnings and the revaluation reserve, are restated from the date on which they were first recognised within equity. So that would apply, to example, for share capital, share premium or other paid-in capital, items that have come through other comprehensive income and are being reported on the balance sheet. The exceptions are the revaluation reserve, which is simply eliminated, because if you think about... um, assets and liabilities being restated, then they all the assets and liabilities are restated to measuring unit current at the end of the period. So the revaluation reserve disappears. Retained earnings is the balancing number when you've been through everything. Okay. One thing to perhaps clarify in connection with the revaluation reserve is that an existing revaluation reserve gets eliminated. If a company continues to use 
a revaluation model after it applies IS-29 really doesn't happen very often. But if a company continues to use it, then um, assets that are subject to revaluation are restated from the date of the last valuation up to the balance sheet date. So again, it's a non-monetary item. It's yeah. going to be stated in a measuring unit current at the end of the period. Okay, brilliant. So that goes through then. We've got, uh, we know what index to use. We know we're focusing on non-monetary and then we've gone through income expenses and equity, always my favourite. Um, to your favourite, Tony, what about tax, current and deferred? It must have an impact. Yeah, it does. Uh, and I think there are, there, there are actually two separate impacts here. So current tax liabilities and the current tax charge. And the current tax charge gets restated in the same way as any other item that, that goes through the income statement. And the current tax liability will get restated in the same way. Deferred tax is more interesting. And of course, think about um, deferred tax. Uh, Deferred tax deals with temporary differences. Temporary difference between the carrying amount of an asset or a liability and its tax base. And what will often happen in an economy that is hyperinflationary is that non-monetary assets and liabilities are going to be restated for inflation, but the tax base doesn't change. So just the the effect of restating for inflation by itself creates a temporary difference. Uh, And IS-12 has an illustrative example, you'll be pleased to know, that deals with hyperinflation and says the act of restating creates temporary difference. And that temporary difference results in a movement in deferred taxes that goes through the income statement. So deferred tax, like it often is, is the last thing to be done. You've done... It can potentially, bigger bigger. it can potentially have a significant effect because you wait till the end. Yeah. You say, okay, what's the deferred tax uh, consequence of the carrying value I have after inflation and my tax base? Yeah. And you do your deferred taxes, so you don't need to restate deferred taxes yeah. because it already res- it, it already reflects all of the other restatements, and there is some specific guidance around how to apply. Um, the hyperinflation model to defer taxes uh, in an exciting publication called IFRIC 7. So there is an explanation for for, for how to do it. Um, and in our in-depth, we actually have a worked example that runs through the mechanics. But to pick up your question, um, yes, it can be quite big numbers because if the tax base does not get restated, um, an economy is hyperinflationary typically because it has cumulative inflation of 100% over three years. So that means the, uh, the carrying value of an asset might have increased by 100% over the last three years with no change in its tax base. And so that's going to give rise to a deferred tax expense, deferred tax liability. The love of deferred tax spreads even further. Tony is very animated at this point. Even I got slightly excited there. Who knew that there were such big implications? Okay, so generally it seems like really complex calculations people have got to do. Mm-hmm. How can they check uh, the overall monetary gain and loss. Right, so we haven't really talked about monetary gain or loss yesterday, uh, until now even. So, um, I, I probably did, but hey. Um, so, non monetary assets and liabilities all get restated measuring unit current at the end of the period. The other side of that entry is to the monetary gain or loss. So, if an item of PPE is restated to reflect the increase in the index, the credit goes to the monetary gain or loss. In the same way, items of income and expense, whether they're going through profit or loss or going through other comprehensive income, are restated to the 
measuring unit current at the end of the year, the other side of those entries goes to the monetary gain or loss. And typically, monetary gain or loss is presented somewhere around about finance costs in the income statement. The standard's not specific, but that's what most people do with it. Um, and obviously, that is a critical number. The calculations can be complicated. It becomes an important number. And it's obviously important to check that the number makes sense. So I think the step there is to, is to pause and say, well, what is the monetary gain or loss? Well, the monetary gain or loss uh, reflects the gain or loss that an entity has incurred as a result of holding monetary assets or having incurred monetary liabilities. What's the consequence of having held those assets while inflation effectively devalues the assets? So that's the purpose of the monetary gain or loss. That's what it tells you. And so the way to cross-check it, make sure the number makes sense, is to figure out the net monetary assets and liabilities. And most companies would figure out an average. And you could do it beginning and end of the year if there wasn't much change, but it's more likely to be something that is weekly or monthly to figure out the average monetary assets or liabilities and then figure out how much the value of those has been eroded as a result of inflation. So you apply the change in the index over the period to the average monetary assets or liabilities and that it's obviously not going to reconcile exactly but that will give you an indication of whether the monetary gain or loss um, is accurate. Gives you a nice little sense check, check yeah. on the right lines, or gives you something to investigate if it's yep. not probably the same. Okay, so Flavia, what about um, thinking, could there be any more to do, but what thinking about comparatives? About comparatives, there is also an impact, obviously. For companies that present their financial statements in Argentine pesos, prior year comparatives for the whole balance sheet and PL are restated at the year end index, and that ensures comparability between periods. However, companies that present their financial statements in a stable currency don't have to restate their comparatives. And the reason for that is because the numbers presented in a stable currency are not affected by subsequent inflation. Perfect. Okay, so we've got to think about comparatives as well. Surely there can't be more, Tony, but are there any other considerations from a group reporting perspective? There are a couple of things to bear in mind. So you've got a, a parent company that has a subsidiary in Argentina. Uh, then there's guidance in both um, IS-29 and IS-21 that addresses the um, implications of hyperinflation. So the, the, the basic model is that the standards together require that the financial statements of the subsidiary that has a functional currency of the hyperinflationary economy are restated for inflation first. So before they're consolidated, they are restated for inflation. They are then translated into the presentation currency, but they are translated using the period end rate. So you would typically use a period end rate for the balance sheet, but you'd use a transaction date or an average rate for the income statement. Because the, the income statement um, and the statement of other comprehensive income have been restated to a measuring unit current at the end of the period, they are translated at the period end rate. So it's just a small wrinkle in the way that the um, consolidation adjustments are recognised. Um, a couple of other things to bear in mind um, in connection with consolidation. 
Uh, as Flavia said, comparatives that are uh, expressed in a stable currency do not get restated. And so there, is, there are a couple of consequences of that. Firstly, when a company uh, first applies hyperinflation accounting in Argentina, so if you had a, an entity in Argentina, that entity would restate its comparatives. That's what Flavia explained earlier. The parent company doesn't restate its comparatives. Therefore, the parent company is going to have an adjustment for cumulative inflation yeah. uh, at the beginning of uh, the period where it first applies IS-29 as a model. Uh, and there's a number of ways that could be dealt with. It could be dealt with in uh, equity. It could be dealt with in other comprehensive income. I think there are mixed views about how it could be dealt with. And there will also be a difference that arises every year going forward because the assets and liabilities will get restated for it. The, the, non-monetary assets and liabilities will get restated for inflation uh, and they'll be restated to the closing rate. But of course, inflation will never exactly offset changes in the exchange rate. So again, there is going to be a difference. Uh, and again, we think there is a choice about how that difference can be presented. Okay, so a few extra considerations on top of that from a group reporting perspective. Can't get say the word perspective today. Um, so final question, I think we're coming to the end of our time now, always important, what should people be thinking about the disclosure? So I'd start with the objective of disclosures. And so what, what are the standards trying to get at with the disclosures? And like everything else, the objective here is to tell the story. So to explain to the users of the financial statements what's happened, what accounting has been applied, and what does that mean for the numbers in the financial statements? There are a couple of specific disclosures required by IS-29. So, for example, um, um, IS-29 um, has, I think, two or three specific items. But I think it's something that the, the disclosures people should think about go a bit beyond that. So if, you're, if you are a company in Argentina, then I think it is helpful to explain the index that's been used yeah. and the changes in the index explain what the consequences are for the opening balance sheet, uh, and be very clear in the accounting policies about how IAS 29 has been applied. You're a parent company with a subsidiary in Argentina. The considerations are the same, but they're going to be slightly different because comparatives don't get restated. Uh, and so there are a couple of extra policies that the company ought to be specific about. How do you deal with the catch-up adjustment uh, and so on? And again, the policies ought to be clear uh, about how uh, IS-29 has been applied and the fact that the comparatives haven't been restated. The big thing is for people to understand. Yeah. And so the extent of the disclosures in a parent company uh, will obviously vary depending on the relative materiality yeah, of the business is. in Argentina to the rest of the group. Yeah. So it might be different to a company in Argentina where yeah, all of the companies in the group are subject to IS-29. Brilliant. So ending on a high with disclosures. So thank you both so much for joining me in the podcast studio. We rattled through the challenging, I would say, world of IS-29 hyperinflation. Um, if you would like more information, we also have an in-depth out and that's available on PwC Inform. Uh, so you can find it there. Uh, thank you very much for tuning in. I'm your host, Ruth Preeti. Happy accounting. The preceding programme was brought to you by PricewaterhouseCoopers LLP. This content is for general information purposes and is not a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.